Let's pray together and then we'll uh, open up the Bible. Lord, it's so nice to be uh, stood here and I thank you for familiar faces that I'll look on. Thank you for church family and thank you that we are brothers and sisters and that we have you, Jesus, as our great brother. The one, like a big brother, you can look up to and he'll look after you. You are that to us and you're more than that to us. You're our saviour and you're our God as well. And we pray that as we hear your words tonight that um, they would be just the words that we need to hear in different ways. Thank you that you can take one word and split it into 10 different meanings. And I pray that we would hear from you by the working of your spirit through your word. Amen. Um, well, I don't know about you, but I wish I was one of those people that could just have a word for every occasion. Um, I'm often left at like nonplussed, you know, something's happened and then the pressure is put on you, you know, Tiffany. And what do you say? You know, some, some horrible news has been dropped, some tragedies happened, some big question has been raised and then the person who's been talking to you sort of leaves that pause for you to fill in with your wisdom and uh, uh, G will laugh at me and I'll laugh at myself because often my sentences trail off into, yeah... <laughs> I really don't know what to say. Um, we took a friend out for, for lunch, and it was a few occasions like this, thinking, Matt, maybe you should say something there, but the words just didn't come. Um, well, those people who have a word for any occasion, of course, Jesus would be the greatest one. You know, a child falls off the bike, Jesus would have just the words to encourage them. There's a car crash, well, Jesus would be there. There'd be some job loss or uh, um, saying goodbye, or whatever it might be, or a period of indecision. Well, Jesus would have the word for that. And um, this evening, we're going to be in Luke chapter 7. And we're going to see how Jesus, in his, in his words, meet the needs of each person. We're going to meet three people this evening. Um, an outsider, a mourner, and a doubting believer as well. Um, so we're in Luke chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, and we come to an outsider. Now when he, that's Jesus, had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, that's the sermon that came before, he entered into Capernaum, and a certain centurion servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die. The centurion was the outsider. Um, he, he wasn't Jewish, but he was there living in Israel. And not only was he not Jewish, but he was part of that empire that was oppressing Israel, wasn't he? He was a Roman soldier. He was hated. He was particularly hated by one of Jesus' new apostles, Simon the Zealot, who hated anything to do with Rome. And he was all viva la Israel. So he was an outsider. And just in case we're not sure, a centurion was like a captain in the army. He had perhaps 60 to 100 men under him, and he was responsible for drilling the men, making sure all their gear was in order, and he'd give the commands in the battle. He was the picture of everything that Israel hated. He was an outsider. And a centurion knew this of himself, but he wasn't just any old centurion, because um, we've read there that he had a servant who was dear to him, and he was sick and ready to die. Now, we're going to read that the centurion has great concern for his servants. 
And that is something that he wouldn't have to show. Roman laws at the time said if your servant was so sick that he couldn't perform his duties, then you could just kill him because he's your property. But this is a man who had integrity, who cared, and he's a man who knew where his authority stopped. He's a man who knew how much he could do and what was beyond him. And so we see the centurion knew himself. Verse 3 says, When he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And so they come to Jesus, and they besought him instantly, or, or um, uh, seriously, genuinely, saying, He was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loves our nation, and he's built as a synagogue. And so Jesus goes with them. And um, we're going to read what, what comes next. But the centurion knew himself, and he knew, I'm an outsider. I can't go to Jesus myself. Who can I send to represent me to Jesus? I know, I'll send some of the Jewish leaders. They, they get on with Jesus, don't they? So I'll send them. And so he does. And amazingly, the Jewish leaders like him. And they recognise some of the things that he's done. But they come to Jesus and they sort of pry Jesus and say, this is the reason why you should heal this man's servant. And, you know, they give some reasonable reasons. They say, um, you know, he's, he's worthy. He, he loves our nation. He's built as a synagogue. Those of us that went to Israel, um, that, I don't know if you've been since. Have you been since G and I went? No, okay. Good. We'll go together again. <laughs> um, but we went to this particular synagogue in Capernaum, and it's still there. You can still see part of it. This man did a grand job. You might say he's the equivalent of somebody who really gave to church. You know, it's, I know we've paid off the, the mortgage for here, but imagine one person just decided to pay it all off. You know, what, what a great thing that would be. Well, the centurion was that and more. And so those um, Jewish leaders came to Jesus and said, this guy's done all this stuff and he loves Israel. So therefore, come and do this act of mercy for him. But in spite of what the Jewish leaders said, The centurion knows himself, and he admits in verse 6 something. As Jesus went with the religious leaders, when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldst enter under my roof. The centurion knew who he was. You know, Maybe um, other people looked at his life and they were like, that man is, you know, an admirable man in society. He, you know, if there's any man that deserves something, then it's that man. But he knew himself. And, you know, sometimes we, if we think about two scientific instruments in the way that we look at ourselves and others, sometimes we look at others' faults under a microscope And we can pick out a million and one things that's wrong in Dot's life or Mick's life. But then we look at our own sins through the wrong end of a telescope. And, you know, oh, whatever, nothing wrong with me. Well, a centurion had it the right way around. He knew when he spoke to Jesus, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. I don't think he was being false. 
you know, I don't think he was, you know, in British culture, we're like, oh, no, you don't need to do that. When really we're saying, yeah, okay, please do it. I don't think he was being false. And, you know, God isn't looking for people who are going to be fake. Um, it's, it's easy. It's sometimes the pressure to pretend to be one way on Sunday, but to be ourselves and completely different come Monday morning. Well, this man was very bare towards Jesus, and so we should be with God as well. And he said, I am not worthy. And he goes on to say in verse 7, um, uh, Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. He said, you shouldn't even be coming under my roof. You know, in those days, for a Jew to go into the house of a Gentile, well, that would make him unclean. And there's still some of that today, isn't there, in in that culture? There's various cultures that won't do the same. I'm not going to that person's house. Well, the centurion admitted that he was unclean. That's something, isn't it? Um, Maybe you've been the um, recipient of prejudice and people, oh, I'm not going near them. Um, sometimes we like to just defend ourselves, even if we know there's something wrong. Well, this man doesn't. He said, look, I am unclean. And you know, Jesus here, this is the first time that a Gentile has asked him for a miracle directly. What would Jesus do? Well, we're going to see. And we're going to see that nobody is excluded from receiving from God through faith. Whether you are an outsider, whether you don't feel that you fit the bill of a Christian, you know, you're too young, or you're too inexperienced, or you've done too much in your life before, or you don't know enough of the Bible, or you don't dress the same way, you can't pray as eloquently as anybody in the church, well, that isn't what God is looking for. He receives those who come to him through faith. Whether you're a Gentile or a soldier, whatever, doesn't matter. Because this centurion says this, look, you don't need to come to me, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. You see, the centurion knew his God. And he goes on to say this, um, I also am a man set under authority. Above centurions, you had all kinds of ranks until you got right to the top to the emperor. And the centurion knew he was, he was uh, in his place. I'm a man set under authority, but also having under me soldiers. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. The centurion knew his God. And he knew who Jesus was. What did he first say when he addresses him? He calls him Lord. Verse 9 says, When Jesus heard the things that the centurion said, he marveled at him. And he turned him around and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, not in Israel. And they that were sent, returning to the house, found the servant whole that had been sick. So the one who was sick that he'd asked for, Jesus had healed from a distance. He said, say the word. You know, we've been watching in the news how President Biden has said the word 
And, um, you know, the American forces and others, obviously, have retreated. Now, was, was Joe over there himself loading people onto planes and saying, go, 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 and waving the, air, the aircraft off and spilling the water on the floor? Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> well, no, Joe Biden wasn't there himself doing it, but his word enough accomplished it, didn't it? This centurion says, look, I know you don't have to be physically there to put a hand on my servant and say some special words to, to make him well. You can just say the word from a distance and he'll be well. You don't need to be close to work. And do you know that Jesus is able to work just as powerfully today in 2021, even though he's not physically present with us, as he was then? <clears throat> Jesus said it was better for him to go so that his spirit could come. Jesus, uh, and yeah, I say this respectfully, but Jesus in his time on earth, he was limited to one place. But now that through his spirit, he fills us and fills the world, well, he, can, he works anywhere. You know, the centurion said, I can speak to any, any manner of servant or soldier and he'll do it. Well, Jesus, as the Lord of everything, can speak to the weather and use that to his, to his advance. He can speak to some um, person on the television to speak whatever. He can um, use that um, traffic jam to his advantage. There's nothing that he can't turn, that he can't say the word from a distance and bring healing. And he wants to do that today. You know, sometimes... The centurion could have said, look, Jesus, I really, I I know you can do it, but I really need you to come and and put your hand on him and do it. And sometimes we can be like that. Lord, I I know that you can save um, such and such, but I need to get them to church first. Or, Lord, I know that you're able to restore this relationship, but I need to have this conversation first. And we put these things in place that God needs to do before he works. And there's, there's nothing that needs to be put in place. God can work. And he's looking for those who will just come and say, Lord, say the word. If you want to do it, then it'll be done. And the man was healed. Does that mean that every time we come to God asking him for healing, for example, that he has to do it? Well, no. He's the boss. He decides what's right. He decides what's right full stop and also what's right when. God's will is important and God's time is important as well. But let's be those who come to him in faith believing. And so Jesus met um, the outsider and he honoured his faith and showed those authoritative words. He said the word and the man was made well. But Jesus comes to meet somebody else in in quite a different place. And he comes to meet a mourner. We read in verse 11 that it came to pass the day after that he went into a city called Nain and many of his disciples went with him. And much people. Now, when he came close to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and much people of the city were with her. Now, on the death of a child, which is what we're reading about here, uh, it's been compared to putting the full stop before the end of the sentence. And some of you know what that feels like. It's untimely, it's unnatural. It's, there was so much more to do. There was so much more to say, so much more to experience. 
It's untimely, it's unnatural. And of all bereavement, it's the hardest to bear. When a parent buries their child, they bury part of themselves, don't they? And so Jesus knew this woman's pain. We read that he came to a city called Nain on the next day. And without, like, you know, knowing the backside of Israel, like the back of our hands, we think, okay, he went to Nain, sure. Well, Nain was 25 miles away from where he was the previous day. So Jesus up sticks um, after what I imagine was quite a busy day and walks 25 miles for this one occasion. Do you know this is the only time that Nain is mentioned in the Bible? Why did Jesus go? Why did he walk 25 miles um, to somewhere that's just in the backside of nowhere, up on a hill? Name. Why did he go there? Because he knew this woman's grief. He knew of it. He, he saw when the child was poorly, and he saw when the child died. And he saw as they came and wrapped up the body and, and, and took it out. And he knew just when to arrive. The woman's pain was known by Jesus. And he had an appointment to keep, and he came at the right time. Now, we might think, well, surely the right time was when the boy was poorly and he could have prevented it. Well, Jesus knew what was best. And you know, when we have those big question marks in life and we don't know the answer, well, sometimes we just have to fill in the blank with Jesus knows what's best. And this was one occasion where he did. The woman's pain was known by Jesus, but it was also felt by him as well. Because we read that when the Lord saw her, though she was surrounded by a crowd of people, she felt utterly alone. She was a widow. Her only son had died. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said unto her, weep not. This wasn't a casual, oh, dry your eyes, chin up, it'll be okay. This is... And the weep not was preparation for what he was going to do. <clears throat> the word compassion means to feel in the gut. And um, compassion has been defined as your pain in my heart. And you know, God feels that same way towards us in our pain. That, that pain that only Steve knows, that nobody else knows, or you know, that only Heather knows, that nobody else is aware of. Well, God knows it. Your pain in his heart, and he feels it. And our God understands what the loss, even of a child, means. Where the preacher might not. But he understands because he lost his only son, didn't he? And that's one of the beautiful things of many about the Christian faith. That God understands because he felt it. Because he lived it. God isn't just aloof, you know. And we can only speak to him in a thee and a thou. And, you know, he isn't real today. But he came and he really did live. And he really does feel. And so did Jesus here. So Jesus knew the woman's pain. And then he came and reversed her grief. In verse 14, we read this. He came and he touched the beer, um, which is a strange word for us, but it's the, it's the stretcher that a body was placed on as it was carried to the cemetery. He came and he touched the beer, and they that bear him stood still. Now, for Jesus to do this was, would be shocking in any context. If, if I was to walk to Carmount Side on tomorrow morning and there's a big you know, funeral party there 
and I'm to step up in front of the, the, the power bearers as they carry the coffin into the, the, the chapel. And somebody comes up and jumps in front of the, 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 the procession. Well, that would be out of order, wouldn't it? What Jesus was doing here, I'm not surprised that everybody stopped. So it was strange on that regard. It was strange because when a Jewish person touched a dead body, that would also make him unclean. But Jesus saw that it was a greater principle here because love fulfilled the law and he was going to undo that which made unclean. And so he does that. And um, so everybody stopped still and he said, young man, I say unto thee, arise. Now, if you were to speak to a dead body, would it respond to you? No. Could it respond to you? No, it's dead. But Jesus speaks to the dead and they have to listen. And we read here that he that was dead sat up and he began to speak and he delivered him to his mother. Now, I don't know what he talked about, but, you know, I think you'd be hanging on his every word and thinking, what on earth is happening here? And so there came a fear on all, unsurprisingly, and they glorified God, saying that a great prophet has risen up among us and that God had visited his people. And this rumor of him went forth through all Judea and throughout all the region round about. A dead boy is being raised. Wow. But we saw there that he who couldn't respond, responded. Jesus called a dead corpse to do something that corpses don't do. They don't sit up and talk. And, you know, sometimes Jesus tells us to do things that are impossible for us to do. Uh, I was preaching at Malkoth last week um, where Jesus in the previous chapter says, love your enemies. Now, that might be as well spoken to me as speaking to a corpse because it is impossible for me to love my enemies. And there are many things that God calls us to do that are impossible. But with the command comes the ability to fulfill it. And so, you know, when you come up and you're reading the Bible or a sermon that you're listening to, something that Dave's reading, love your enemies, pray for those that, 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 um, that abuse you. And he's like, well, that's not going to happen. Well, by the working of God in our hearts, these things can. You can say, Lord, I'm a dead corpse to this. I can't do this. But as you just come and say, ah, but I'm going to lean. It's like the trust exercise. I can't do it. Ah. But as you do, then the Lord will catch you. And maybe step by step, you'll begin doing that. He calls us to do impossible things. But with his call comes the ability to do it. So maybe there's somebody that you need to forgive or to pray for or to love and to bless that is your enemy. That's another sermon, but there you are. Maybe that's for you. So, yeah, Jesus speaks to the dead. And, you know, as a believer in Christ, when your body is dead, Jesus is going to speak to you. Some of those familiar words from 1 Thessalonians 4, which I'll summarize for time's sake, but says there's coming a day when the Lord's going to Blast that trumpet, the archangel will speak, and the dead in Christ will rise first. The dead will rise when God speaks. And you know, this woman's grief was reversed. One day her son would, would actually die. He, he would die and would not be raised. But what a comfort to us 
that our bodies, though they will die, yet they will live. Peggy, she's going to live. Well, she's alive now, but her body's going to be raised as well at the resurrection. And we'll meet her when Jesus comes to call up his church. And that very passage says, comfort each other with those words. So the dead here, but also the unbelieving dead here as well. And Revelation 20 speaks about this. Um, where it says in um, verse 12, uh, the dead, small and great, stand before God. The books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And then verse 14 says, death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Whoever wasn't found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And Jesus' words have authority even beyond this life and into death. But, you know, each one of us is in um, one of those two crowds. We're either in that crowd that are following Jesus to the city, the city whose builder and maker is God. Or we're in that crowd that are following sin to the cemetery. But our trust in Jesus switches the crowd around. Um, I'm going to read to you some of Jesus' words from John uh, chapter 3 and verse 36. Where he said, um, actually they're not, they're John's words. But it says that he that believes on the Son has everlasting life. And he that believes not the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. That's our natural state. We're in that crowd, going to the cemetery, following sin, the wrath of God abiding on us. But to those who believe on the Son, they have everlasting life. And they're in that crowd, following him. Death is just the the porch way to enter into the house of eternal life. And so we, we come to a third person, which is... Um, my last point, which, is, <laughs> which will be 10 minutes, but it's my last point. And Jesus meets another kind of person. He's seen um, the outsider and he's honoured his faith. He's seen the mourner and he felt her grief. And now he comes through messengers to the doubting believer. And maybe some of us, we're still sat here on Sunday evening in the church, but there's lots of doubts inside our heart. And maybe you haven't shared those with people. Well, there was a man whose name was John. And we're going to read about him here in verse 18. It says that the disciples of John showed him of all these things. Now, remember that John couldn't see these things for himself. Why? He was in the clink. John was in prison. Who was John? John was John the Baptist. He was that man who came to preach that Jesus was coming. He even baptised Jesus and he said, look, this is the Lamb of God. So he was like Jesus' warm-up act, if you like. He was, he was um, very close to Jesus and he served Jesus. But then, for one, one reason or another, Herod didn't like him and he got locked up in prison. And this outdoorsman who ate stuff that he found, who wore camel skins, now finds himself in a cell. And it has an impact on him. 
You know, I know that Kevin has spoken on, on Elijah and the way that his physical frame was affected his mind, affected his spirit. And it was probably the same with John here, incarcerated. And so he hears about these things and verse 19 says, John called to him two of his disciples and then he sent them to Jesus saying, are you he that should come or look we for another? When the men were come unto him, they said, uh, John the Baptist sent us to you, saying, Are you he that should come, or should we look for another? Now, why did John doubt? How did John go from being, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, to saying, Are you the right guy? Should we look for somebody else? How, how did that happen? Well, maybe part of that is the physical side. But also, perhaps, things didn't happen according to John's timing. Remember, John preached, this is the one who's going to baptise with fire. He's going to come with his um, fan and he's going to separate the good from the bad and he's going to bring judgment through fire. Now, was John wrong in his preaching? No. Was John's timing in his own mind different to how Jesus was actually going to work? Well, probably yes. And so John, expecting maybe Jesus to come and kick him out of prison and like, throw Herod off his throne and dunk him in the Red Sea or something. Well, he he doesn't do that. And Jesus' focus was on not uh, political salvation, but spiritual, people's souls. And so John comes and he asks this question. And are we any different when when Jesus' timing is different than what we would expect? You know, when that marriage partner hasn't come along that we'd expected or... um, that um, just things haven't turned out in life the way that we want it. Things haven't been as easy as we thought. Do we feel the same? Sometimes we do. So John comes and he asks for almost an extra proof. Jesus, are you the guy? Please just make it clear. And what does Jesus say? Verse 21. Well, we read that in the same hour, Jesus cured many of their infirmities and plagues and of evil spirits, And unto many that were blind, he gave sight. And so Jesus answered and said to them, go your way and tell John the things that you have seen and heard. How that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. And to the poor, the gospel is preached. And blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. What evidence did Jesus offer? what he'd already done. And you know, Jesus specifically did those things to fulfill prophecy about himself, particularly in Isaiah, um, which I won't go over for time's sake, but in Isaiah 35, 26 and 61, you read about those specific things like the blind eyes being opened and those leaping and, and the lepers being cleansed. But on that topic of doubt, I want to speak to two kinds of people before we close this evening. The first kind of person is that person who's looking for a reason to follow Jesus. And I look out on you and, you know, as far as I can see, you're all following Jesus, but maybe not. So the person who's looking for a reason to follow Jesus, and you're in that place of doubt. And people often say, I believe God if he gave me some sign. You know, you've heard that before, I'm sure. Well, what Jesus would say to this person would probably be the same as what he said to John. Look at what I've already done. How about creation? How about the the design from the smallest thing 
the tiniest process in your body to the way that all the stars spin around in just the right way in the galaxies. How about creation? How about your own conscience, which is the same in Brian as it is in, what's his name, in Papua New Guinea, as it was in people times past and people to come. We all have that same uh, general compass that's been put there by a lawgiver. Jesus might say, well, look at the Christian And yes, Christians mess up. But look at the way that their lives have been changed as they've supposedly met with me. And look at the book that I've written here. You know, if we think about it realistically, even some people who saw Jesus' miracles didn't believe him, did they? So why should I think that if God was to, you know, leave me a message on the wall saying, hey, Matt, I'm real, follow me, why would that make a difference for me? I'd probably find a reason to justify it. It's not so much a a matter of what's going on up here, but do you want to believe or do you want to go your own way? But maybe you do have genuine questions. Uh, And one of those is this, how can we believe these miracles are written in the Bible? Surely they're just old stories written to a naive people 2,000 years ago that got the job done and got a religion started. Well, (laughs) And Jesus appealed to those miracles, didn't he? So can we believe those? We shouldn't believe that people back then were stupid. I think that's arrogant, to be honest. People knew what could happen normally and what would not normally happen. But how about the laws of science? Surely they exclude miracles happening. Well, laws of science just say how things normally happen. You know, when, when you throw an apple up into the sky, it normally comes back down, sometimes on your head, sometimes somewhere else. But it normally comes back down. But if you can believe the first sentence of the Bible, as I'm sure you've heard before, miracles are no problem. In the beginning, God created everything. And so if God created everything, including those laws, surely he can choose to just dip in every now and again and think, oh, I'm going to raise that person there, oh, I'm going to heal that leper, oh, I'm going to turn that around. It's no biggie. So to the person looking for reasons to follow Jesus, there's every reason. And the greatest of which is the greatest thing he did and the greatest miracle. That God would become a person and that that person would die. God died in a way. And he died for our sin. He, he, he took that wrath that we talked about on himself. So that we wouldn't have to pay for that sin. We wouldn't have to die because Jesus died. And then he rose. And that miracle is something that's attested in the Bible and in my life and many people's lives here. There's every reason to follow Jesus. But I wonder, is it a matter of up here or is it a matter of down here? And the second person I'd like to speak to is the follower of Jesus who's struggling with doubt. And what I would like to say is that you are not a second-rate Christian if you doubt. You're not alone if you doubt occasionally. Charles Spurgeon, who I don't need to introduce from this pulpit, said this, My peculiar temptation has been constant unbelief. Charles Spurgeon, for goodness sake. My peculiar temptation has been constant unbelief. Him. John Bunyan was the same. And you're not alone if you doubt sometimes. I'd say this as well. There's a difference between the temptation to doubt and the sin of unbelief. Another preacher from the 1880s said, doubt is can't believe, unbelief is won't believe. 
So where are you? Are you in that place where you're, oh, you're struggling? You want to, but you can't. Or are you in that place where, look, I am not going to believe that? One is a willful decision, isn't it? So know there's a temptation between the two. And don't feel beat up if there is a doubt there. Confess it to God. Don't be fake. Say, Lord, I know what I should believe, but I'm finding it hard. Well, be honest. You know, don't keep building a plastic facade of this is what Ben Haxby looks like from the front, but he's really, really struggling with God. You don't need that and it isn't helpful. Be honest with God. When you doubt, go with what you know to be true rather than what you currently feel to be true. C.S. Lewis said that faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. I'd say look back on God's faithfulness to you and know that you'll continue to be faithful in the future. And think much on the love of Christ shown from the cross. You doubt that God loves you because this thing hasn't happened. He hasn't provided this thing for you. This time at work or at college has been tough. And we doubt that God loves us. Well, the greatest way that he could show his love for us in that he died for us. There's no greater love. And as we wrap up going to verse 28, I want us to see this. That doubt isn't the end. From verse 24, we read that when the messengers of John were departed, he began to speak to the people concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind. John wasn't a compromiser. But what went you out to see? A man clothed in soft raiment or clothes. Behold, they which have got really nice clothes live comfortably in king's courts. But what did you go out to see? A prophet, yes. And I say to you, much more than a prophet. Because this prophet had prophecies made about him. It was he of whom it was written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, and he shall prepare the way before you. For I say to you, among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Jesus didn't write off John in his doubt, did he? He said, this guy is the greatest man that's ever been born, even when he had those doubts. And I think that is the kindness of Jesus. Kind is a lovely word, isn't it? And Jesus' heart is full of kindness. But know this, great as John is, according to Jesus, we can be greater. Through Jesus and believing what he has accomplished for us. John was the herald of the kingdom, but through faith, we can be friends of the king. And what a place that is to be. So, as we wrap up, Jesus' jaw dropped at the centurion's faith. It's one of two times that Jesus' jaw dropped at the centurion's faith and at those in Nazareth and their unbelief. So if Jesus' jaw is going to drop at, at me, what's it going to drop for? My belief in him and sticking to him or my unbelief in spite of all that he is and all that he's done? Maybe you're an outsider and you don't feel that you fit in particularly well with this Christian faith, even though you've tried. Well, know that Jesus honours your faith. That's what he's looking for. Maybe you're a mourner and you have grief that's known or maybe it's secret. Know that Jesus feels your grief. Or maybe you're a doubting believer. He's big enough to shoulder our doubts. 
And so we close there. I'm just going to pray for us as we do.